0: And welcome into the service this morning. Take your Bibles and turn to Song of Solomon. How many of you have ever heard a preacher preach from Song of Solomon? All right, about 10 of you. I'm going to deal with two fifths of it this morning, and I will leave the other three fifths to you, husbands' and wives' imaginations and reading when you get home. Some of you just took a turn, like, what does it say? It pays to read the whole Bible. We'll be in several passages passages this morning as we look at different homes and in particular this morning we are looking at marital relationship. Next week we'll look at Father's Day back into roles and on the 26th of June in our different home series we'll look at parental relationships as we consider relationships. I told you in the beginning of this series that if it was a book I would preach it in different order but we're doing this so that we can also tag some of the holidays or things that we highlight, uh, as a country and as a people And so it is a little disjointed I would put the two relationships back to back If I were writing the book But thankfully I don't need to I'm just preaching the messages This morning we're looking at marital relationships And we're going to read a lengthy passage here In chapters 1 and 2 And I will do my best to note Where there is a transition from one speaker to the next What you will find in the Song of Solomon Or the Song of Psalms as it's called in verse number 1 is a conversation between a man Solomon the king and the woman the wife the woman that he loves that he found out in the countryside likely of Shunam in that area the Shunamite woman and we find their interaction that comes through very clearly here in the Song of Solomon and I think it sets us very well in order to talk about marriage because of what they sing to one another so I will do my best, if you will do your best, to follow along as we read this morning. We pick up our reading in verse number one of chapter number one of Song of Solomon. The Bible says, the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. Girls, this is you. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. For thy love is better than wine, because of the savor of thy good ointments. Thy name is as ointment poured forth. Therefore, do virgins love thee, draw me. We will run after thee. The king hath brought me into his chambers. We will be glad and rejoice in thee. We will remember thy love more than wine. The upright love thee. I am black but comely. O ye daughters of Jerusalem, as the tents of Kedar, as the curtains of Solomon, look not upon me because I am black, because the sun hath looked upon me. My mother's children were angry with me. They made me the keeper of the vineyards. But mine own vineyard have I not kept. Tell me, O thou whom my soul loveth, Where thou feedest, where thou makest thy flock to rest at noon? For why should I be as one that turneth aside by the flocks of thy companions? Here the man speaks. If thou know not, O thou fairest among women, go thy way forth by the footsteps of the flock, and feed thy kids beside the shepherd's tent. I have compared thee, O my love, to a company of horses in Pharaoh's chariots. Men, you might want to use that today. It might be good for you to use that one. honey. I think you're like a company of horses. (laughs) Some of these analogies that Solomon's going to use practically apply to his day, but probably don't apply to our day. Although you can be the determiner of that. Thy cheeks are comely with rows of jewels, thy neck with chains of gold. We will make the borders of gold with studs of silver. The woman begins speaking again in verse 12. While the king sitteth at his table, my spikenard, or my perfume, sendeth forth the smell thereof. A bundle of myrrh is, my well-beloved, unto me, he shall lie all night betwixt my breast. My beloved is unto me as a cluster of campfire in the vineyards of Engeti. The man speaks, behold, thou art fair, my love, behold, thou art fair, thou hast dove's eyes. The woman speaks, behold, thou art fair, my beloved, Yea, pleasant. Also, our bed is green. The beams of our house are cedar and our raptors fur. The man speaks in verse 1 of chapter 2. I am the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valley. As the lily among thorns, so is my love among the daughters. The woman speaks as the apple tree among the trees of the wood. So is my beloved among the sons. I sat down under his shadow with great delight, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. He brought me to the banqueting house and his banner over me was love. Stain me with flagons, comfort me with apples, for I am sick of love. His left hand is under my head, his right hand doth embrace me. In fact, because our littlest is sick today, I gave Jessica a kiss that way as I headed to church, because I knew she wouldn't be here to hear this wonderful preaching. And she said, what are you doing that for? (laughs) She didn't say that. Verse 7 I charge you, O ye daughters of Jerusalem, by the rose and by the hinds of the field, that ye stir not up or awake my love till he please. And the voice of my beloved, behold, he cometh leaping upon the mountains, skipping upon the hills. My beloved is like a roe or a young hart. Behold, he standeth behind our wall. He looketh forth at the windows, showing himself through the lattice. My beloved spake and said unto me, Rise up, my love. My fair one, and come away. For lo, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone, the flowers appear on the earth, and the time of singing of birds has come, and the voice of the turtle is heard in our land. This is the story of the birds and the bees. The fig tree putteth forth her green figs. The vines with the tender grape give a good smell. Arise, my love, my fair one, and come away. The man now speaks. O my dove, thou art in the clefts of the rock, in the secret place of the stairs. Let me see thy countenance. Let me hear thy voice. For sweet is thy voice, and thy countenance is comely. The woman and the women of Jerusalem speak again. Take us, the foxes. The little foxes that spoil the vines, or the things that distract us. For our vines have tender grapes. My beloved is mine, and I am his. He feedeth among the lilies until the day break, and the shadows flee away. <clears throat> Turn, my beloved, and be thou like a roe or a young heart upon the mountains of Bethlehem. Father, help us this morning as we come to a passage of Scripture and look at many <coughs> passages of Scripture this morning that deal with our home And in particular, and specifically this morning, our marriages. Our country is in great need of godly marriages once again. And much of what I'm going to preach this morning is going to be hard for many an ear to hear. Because even in many of our good homes, sometimes even in the pastor's home. We struggle with these realities because we're flesh and blood, because we're human in our nature. Oh, may we take on that divine nature, that spiritual man that is given to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Bless us. I pray this morning, Lord, in this hour, in Jesus' name. Amen. You cannot read the Song of Songs and not come away knowing that this woman and this man were deeply... And passionately in love with each other. How many of you men this morning who are married would say, that's what I say to my wife every day? <laughs> well, no, Pastor, not, I don't do that. Why not? By the way, I have never heard a pastor preach through the Song of Solomon. Because most of them do what I just did and stop at the end of chapter two. Some of them even deign or dare to go into chapter three, but not a one of them will enter chapter four or chapter five. And now all the teenagers are like, I going to read (laughs) those. Parental guidance suggests, but certainly encouraged. For we live in a world where marriages are no longer built biblically upon deep love, passion, true biblical passion for one another. These two were in love. This is a very passionate book, Song of Solomon. It is a very descriptive book, the Song of Solomon. It is also a very beautiful and useful book. No part of this letter or this book should be read lustfully. There is certainly a spiritual context, as Edward alluded to in the introductory reading this morning. The relationship here is an intimate and deep relationship that God the Son desires to have with his bride, the church, which you and I consist of this morning. There is a spiritual truth within the Song of Songs for that. But make no mistake, it was written about a man and a woman who were deeply in love. We can't over-spiritualize books of the Bible to fit narratives that we certainly would like to be true. That Christ loves his church, as we'll see this morning, is not in doubt. He does. The passage here in Song of Solomon, first and foremost, directly applied within its context in writing, is of a husband and wife that love each other. God knows us. God wants us to know him. He doesn't want us to know him marginally, but he wants us to know him meaningfully and intimately. As this pertains to marriage, there's much that a husband and wife then can glean from the Song of Solomon. In fact, in pre-marriage counseling, I encourage in the final week of purity that the soon-to-be groom and soon-to-be bride read this passage together. Why? Because I'm an ordinary pastor? No, because I want them to have a healthy marriage. And my job is to prepare them for marriage. I often say this to them as they prepare in that final week leading up to the day they're married. There's nothing quite like lighting a little physical fire. And that's what Song of Solomon does. By the way, that physical fire should exist in every marriage. The irony always in reading the Song of Songs for me is that Solomon had 999 wives and concubines. Did he say this to all of them? Did all of them say this to him? You have to ask. I believe it actually that fact makes this Song of Songs even more meaningful. This one, this woman This was the lover of his soul. This is the one to whom he wanted to be betrothed. This is the one who his eye, his heart, and his head were fixed upon. Oh yes, there were 998 other ones. Many were marriages of expediency or marriages of convenience for the kingdom and for the crown's sake. But this woman was the one that he loved. This woman was the one that he longed for. Biblically... Let me just state this in case it's missed. We are to have one wife as we walk this earth. I like what one person said, at least have one wife at a time. And I don't mean that in the sense that until you divorce. I mean, it is until death do you part. Some men, by the way, when I say we're to have one wife, just went, whoo! Well, you guys that say that should listen up this morning. What I want to do today is, in our Different Homes series, to develop and to keep within our homes an intimate and intense marriage relationship. And to do so, I believe there are four keys to unlocking a healthy marriage. The love that is shared between Solomon and this woman can be also the words that reverberate in our heart, not just in the physical sense... But in the intimate sense, in the depths of the love one for another. But there's four keys to unlocking that kind of marriage. We begin, if you'll take your Bibles, back in Genesis chapter 2. Turn there with me. In Genesis chapter number 2, we find God giving us a clear reality first in our notes this morning. The first key to unlocking a healthy marriage is to have... A clear focus or a clear picture of what reality is. There is a clear reality that God has established for your marriage, men and women. In Genesis 2 and in Genesis 3, we will see both before and beyond the fall how this is true. God has designed the man and the woman uniquely for themselves. It is time that Christian homes begin acting like God has different instructions and directions for each of the spouse in it. The revolt against God's design is nothing new. We find the emasculation of man and the defeminizing of the woman going as far back as the days of Noah and beyond. God has a designed role for you if you're a man, and he has a designed role for you if you're a woman. No matter how much the modern, sophisticated world tries to build their lie, a man is a man, and a woman is a woman. Instead of hating that, we should embrace that design. And so we find letter A, the role is set by God. Look with me in chapter number 2 and in verse 15. We'll read it in just a moment. Excuse me, go to chapter 1 and verse 27. We'll read that first. Chapter 1 and verse 27, the Bible says this. So God created man in his own image, In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. God the Creator has designed, not described, He has designed male and female. By the way, if we say that God has described what a man is and described what a woman is, then those that don't believe in God can describe it some some other way. But the Creator is the one who designed it. You cannot drive your car backwards. I guess you can for a while, but the motor wasn't intended to go that way. It's not how it was designed to work. It was designed in its four, six, or eight years, or however many your car has, to go forward. That's how the designers built it. So the designer designed a male and a female. In chapter 2, if you look in verse number 7, you find a specific, what is broad in chapter 1 and verse 27, a specific and particular winnowing down to what God desired and designed that life of the created being, male and female, to be. In verse number seven, the Bible said, The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils, not into the ape, not into the elephant, not into the ostrich, not into the fish, but into man's nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living soul. That distinction of a living soul is what is different between me and my dog. And I love my dog. But when that dog passes, his time on this earth will be done, and he will be no more. Now, my wife is sitting at home watching on TV and saying, no, Kyle, no, he'll live with me. If that's true, he'll live with her. But he's he's not a living soul like me. There's a difference in the way God has created us. God made man and woman, but he made both of them for a purpose, a unique purpose for both unique sexes. We find a little one underneath this thought is that the man is the provider. The man is the provider. Before the curse and beyond the curse, Adam was tasked with dressing, keeping, and then cultivating the ground. Before the curse, it was the garden. After it was the ground. That ground after the curse became much more difficult, did it not? Look in verse 15 of chapter 2. And the Lord God took the man and put him <laughs> into the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. If you go over to chapter 3, verses 17, 18, and 19, you find this. And unto Adam he, that's God, said, Because thou hast hearkened to the voice of thy wife. In other words, you got things out of order. You didn't listen to me, you listened to her. And has eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee. And thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread. Till thou return unto the ground. For out of it wast thou taken. For dust thou art. And into dust shalt thou return. What we find in these two passages is the single and simple one word description of what every man is to be in his marriage, and that is a provider. He is to provide. Every counseling I've ever done on pre marriage, I always will start the marriage counseling by making sure that there is an understanding that it is the man's role to provide. Well, you're just bigoted and sexist, Pastor. I'm biblical. And hopefully I'm spiritual instead of bigoted in sexist. For the Bible says this is how God designed it. This is God's order. This is God's purpose. The purpose in this was to provide for himself, Adam was to do that, for his mate and then for his children if God gave them. It is never not Adam's job to provide. Ever. Now, there may be physical limitations there may be accidents there may be things that come on a man where that no longer is a possibility and with that there's even exceptions in the old testament law and in new testament grace but it does not exempt the man from striving and efforting to always be the provider in his home because that's god's design for him that's, good. that's the role that god has made for him by the way provision is not just money It means to provide in every way. I often will tell people when I come to pray with them, how can I pray for you physically, emotionally, and spiritually? Because we are body, soul, and spirit. And so it means, husbands, you're not just supposed to make sure you make enough money to make her happy and then check out the rest of the time. A man's role is always to provide. That means to provide physically, which has a fiscal financial element to it. But it also means that you're to do most of the hard work around the house. Not in the house, but around the house. And a lot of times men go, man, I'm so tired from making money all week. I can't do it. I get it. But that's the thorns and the thistles. That's the sweat of your brow. God's order is that you provide. It means emotionally. Well, I just can't relate to her. Can I tell you a secret, man? No man ever has been able to relate successfully to a woman. But by God's grace, you can. Well, I don't understand her. Right. Did you understand her when you married her? I thought I did. (laughs) Your job is to provide emotional, not support, but emotional direction, emotional stability, You're to provide spiritually. Well, I just let my wife do the Bible learning in our house. You should. I was going to get Wes out of trouble from the Sunday school hour, but I think I'll let him hang there for a while. You didn't come. He did a wonderful job teaching in Sunday school this morning. But he said, if I don't understand something, I go to Jessica. I know that's not true. But I also know that it's true because all of us men at some point have gone to our wives and said, what is your take on this verse? What do you, if there's something that is too hard for us to understand in that moment, of course we apply ourselves. But that doesn't mean that we don't strive to be the spiritual leaders. There may be things, men, that our wives know better than us naturally. They're given to it in their nature. But it does not exempt us from the effort to provide the spiritual leadership that they need in the home. The role was to arrange and attend to the garden. And then the struggle came with... The thorns and the thistles, and by the way, most men today live in the thorns and the thistles. They don't live in the fullness of their provision that they are supposed to be giving. The second note that I have underneath here is that the wife or the woman is the helper. Pastor, that is so demeaning. My only function, my one word role, is that of a helper not demeaning it's demanding your job is to make sure now don't run away with this i'll explain it but your job is to make sure that your husband the husband that god has given to you becomes all that he can be in the eyes of the lord by the way i didn't say all that he's supposed to be in your eyes all that he can be in the eyes of the lord it's not demeaning Our women today believe the lie that it is demeaning. But God says that it is the wife's role to be a helpmeet. A home where the wife is required to work to help provide is a home that is living beyond its means and beyond its God-given role. And it is asking the wife to bear a double curse. Pastor, I I don't know if I agree with you. Notice I used the word required. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18, look there with me, we'll find this role for the wife given. The Bible says in verse 18, the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him an help for him. Sometimes I think we would like for God to give us a much fuller explanation of what he means. We would like him to use a lot of words like sometimes we do when we're stumbling to grasp a concept. But God grasps the concept clearly and he speaks it succinctly. The reason he made Eve, the reason he created a man and a woman, was so that the man could tend to the garden and provide and that the woman could help him in meeting the need that he sufficiently could not meet on his own. That's the role. She's the helper. If you look down in chapter 3 and in verse 16, you will find beyond the fall into the curse, God says this unto the woman. He said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception in sorrow. Thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. Have you ever wondered, and I've preached on this many times through the years, on Mother's Day or on other times that we're preaching on the whole And I've asked this question then. Have you ever wondered why God had to tag that last line? Why he had to put that in there? And thy desire shall be to thy husband. Well, of course I desire him. It's just like Solomon and the woman. It's just like the song of Solomon. That's exactly right. That's not what that phrase means. If that's what that phrase was meant for, that it was just a longing desire for your husband, ladies, then he would not have given the qualifier that says, and he shall rule over thee. What he's saying is, your desire is for the role that I gave to the man, and the man in his role God ordained will rule over you. And it's not a message that any woman wants to hear a man preach. I understand that. I get it. But if we're truly going to have different homes, then we're going to have to embrace having a clear focus of reality on what God has established as our roles in this world. It doesn't diminish, and we're going to look in our other three keys as to why it doesn't diminish who you are. Or what you can accomplish in this world But these are the roles The man must provide The woman must be a helper And you say you can't distill all of my role Down to two single words For the man and for the woman And the answer is God did Very succinctly He said don't get confused by much talking The vain deceits and traditions of men And their vain philosophies Paul would have said in Colossians chapter 2 and Verse 8 The phrase, help meet, in verse 18 of Genesis 2, means a succor, one who is a supplier to the other. It is one who aids or assists, especially in distress or difficulty. If you read Genesis 2 to its fullness, Adam is looking about, seeing that there's Mr. Elephant and Mrs. Elephant. There's Mr. Ox and Mrs. Ox. they may have different names, but they're all bovine. And there's Mr. Camel and Mrs. Camel, and there's Mr. Kangaroo and Mrs. Kangaroo. There's even Mr. Cockroach and Mrs. Cockroach, if I understand how those bugs populate as well. But what he noticed was, in his distress and in his difficulty, there's a Mr. Adam, but there's not a Mrs. Eve anywhere. And so God brings along a helper. You see, when we get a clear picture of what reality is, not from our opinion, not from the news cycle, not from the blog post, not from the women's articles that we read or the men's chauvinistic articles that we read, when we take all of that noise away and we come back just to the Bible, we realize God keeps our marriage very, very simple because he's given us just two simple roles. Provide and help. Let it be that leaves the responsibility to us. <clears throat> obedience to our roles brings oneness within the marriage. Disobedience to our roles brings chaos to the marriage. Yes. Right. That's what happens when we follow God's plan. It is obedience and blessing. There is obedience and oneness. When we fail to follow God's plan, marriage fractures and it falls apart at worst, or merely is feeble in its approach to this life at best. When we fail to embrace the reality of our God-given roles in this creation, that is what we produce. The problems that we have in this world today, even for so-called Christians, is that we don't wholly commit to obeying and fulfilling God's design for our marriage. Thus there are gaps And at moments, and at times, even chasms, where we have turned his ideal marriage into the ordeal that is our marriage. And that's the truth so often. I mean, you can come to church, and you can dress up nice and put your smile on for 45 minutes and just put up with everybody. Make sure you don't say anything. Tell the kids to shut up. Don't let them say anything when they go there. And let's get home and make sure that we just hold it together until we get back in the car. (laughs) Pastor, have you and Jessica ever come to church this way? Well, she's not here, so she can't answer. And the answer is no. <laughs> the answer is all of us are flesh and blood. All of us are human. Yes. As contrary to some of your opinions as it possibly is, there are times that my wife and I disagree. <laughs> And sometimes it's because I'm not fulfilling my role, and very rarely it's because she's not fulfilling hers. Having clarity helps us get back to what God's ideal for marriage is, and it takes us from the ordeal that we've made our marriage into. Having clarity on our reality, we then move to the second key. By the way, if you don't have that first key, you're not getting into that door. I I kind of look at this marriage thing, and sometimes I'll say this in premarriage counseling. It's like those escape rooms. You've got to get one key to get to the next part. You've got to get the next key to get to the next part. And there's four keys to get you out into a healthy marriage. That's the first one. You have to have a clear reality in your mind. God has given the role. We have the responsibility to uphold. Number two, there is a right mentality. Take your Bibles and turn over with me to 1 Peter, chapter number 3. Remember, we're trying to have the loving relationship that Solomon and his beloved had in the Song of Songs. How do they have that ooey-gooey, sticky chewy kind of marriage that we all kind of want, but at some point we're like, it's not possible? How do they have that? And the answer is because somewhere along the way, the two of them unlocked these things. It wasn't just the physical for them. You don't call someone your beloved and long for them just because of the physical realm. We'll talk about that in a few moments, and some of you will have to put your fingers in some of your kids' ears. That's the kind of message it needs to be today. We start with the right mentality. In 1 Peter chapter number 3, begin reading with me in verse number 1. Peter says, Likewise, ye wives, be, su- be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, that is the word of God, they also may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives. What is he saying here? He's saying if you women live the right kind of gospel life, if you've been saved and your husband has not, there is hope for him. He is not saved through you, but he is saved by watching your life. He is convinced of what Christ has done. Verse 2, while they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear, whose adorning, let it not be the outward adorning of plating of hair and wearing of gold or putting on, a, on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God a great price. For after this manner in the old time, the holy women also, who trusted in God, adorned themselves, being in subjection to their own husbands, even as Sarah obeyed Abraham. Now let's pause for a second and let's talk about this. Did Sarah really obey Abraham that well? Was Sarah, like, really, really good at obeying Abraham? From my reading of the book of Genesis, she struggled a lot with it. (laughs) Sarah's going to have a child. And Abram walks in and says, You're going to have a child, and she's still laughing. Yet somewhere along the way, Sarah understood that she had to subject the hidden man of her heart, her inner person, to the will of God, the word of God, to accomplish the work of God. She had to come to a point where she understood that. We continue reading, and we see that uh, it says, Who daughters ye are, so long as ye do well. And are not afraid with any amazement. Likewise, verse 7, Ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, that them here is your wives, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. Peter is talking here about perspective. How we look at what we have been, to to the role that we've been placed into in our lives. When we decide to marry... Peter says there is a mentality that comes with that marriage proposal and with that marriage agreement. It is interesting always to me that Peter takes six verses talking to the women and seven to the men. Or excuse me, just verse seven to the men, just one to the men. Why is that? Right, because the men are hard-headed and he had to keep it short. Women are intelligent and have a certain air of grace about you, of understanding. The truth of the matter is, it's because in the mental approach to marriage, it is far more difficult for ladies to stay faithful to God's calling and their role than it is for a man. The mental approach is important. I read a poem years ago, and I loved it, so I always put it in my notes when I'm preaching on marriage. It says, to keep your marriage brimming with love in the loving cup, whenever you're wrong, admit it. Whenever you're right, shut up. That's a good one, isn't it? All the women are laughing. Is that the right mentality, by the way? Perhaps. Peter lays out the right mentality for both wives and for their husbands. He says to the wives first, Wives, accept his, that is your husband's, Position. Come to terms really. with well, it. I don't like it. God doesn't care. God loves you. God cares for you, but He doesn't care when your thoughts and your mentality run afoul or contrary to His Word. What He cares about is bringing you into conformity to the image of His Son. In those moments. No woman in her natural state enjoys hearing what God says about their role from Genesis 2 and 3, and what it says here in 1 Peter 3, or what we'll see again in Ephesians chapter 5. But God, not you, made the order of creation. You need to understand that. You need to come to an acceptance of that. I I love the secret, by the way, if you want to underline a verse, underline ladies verse 4. That's the heart of the matter because it's the heart of the matter. He says, but let it be the hidden man of the heart in that which is not corruptible. In other words, it is within your feelings. For the men, it's usually the facts that we've got to deal with and overcome. For the ladies, it's always the feeling. Well, I don't feel that's important. Okay, well, the facts bear out that it is. I love you, honey, but the facts are saying this. Well, my feelings are saying this. I know. So we take you back to 1 Corinthians chapter 9 if we're good husbands, and that is that we bring every thought into captivity. We, We bring it into suppression. We bring it down into an understandable, factual basis. Ladies, your life as a wife will change when you realize that you must change your mental approach to marriage. If you are envious and challenging to your husband's position, then you will live constantly in a state of contempt and discontentment. That will be your norm. And that is not sustainable. It is certainly not enjoyable. And I don't even mean for your husbands. I mean for you. If you accept graciously, in the heart of hearts, in your spiritual inner man, God's design, then your thinking will begin to change. Notice, it's interesting here, Peter doesn't even care if your husband is a believer or unbeliever. We have several ladies in our church that faithfully come to church and their husbands are either secretly unbelievers or wantonly unbelievers. I'm grateful and thankful for each one of you and your desire to be here and to be faithful to the Lord. It is a daunting task to be sure. But Peter's point is... It's irrelevant what your husband is. Well, he's just a jerk! Well, he may be. And you may be justified in saying that. Because there's a lot of men that are. (laughs) It is chaste or pure conversation or lifestyle coupled with fear and that is reverence. (gasps) I am not going to kiss his feet! That's not what it says. Reverence or fear here is the idea of all for the position that he's been given we yeah. are to have fear towards God that is reverence towards God for the posi- position that he possesses he's God and in this instance there is fear you're not afraid that he's going to hit you I hope not if he is you come talk to me we'll go talk to the police that should never be in a Christian home well oh, pastor our counseling is private listen not if there's abuse we go to the police and let them handle it. My job is to help you spiritually. Their job is to help you physically. Nowhere does this say that if your husband abuses you, if he's abandoned you, do you need to grin and bear it? But if your husband, and we can read that in 1 Corinthians 7 at a later time, is pleased to dwell with you, then your consistent godly life will be the hook that brings that unbelieving husband into the realm of understanding what salvation is. How does she put up with me, he will have to say. And the answer is only by the grace of God. Only by the salvation of my soul. So wives, no matter if you have a believing or an unbelieving, jerk or a jewel for a husband... Your job, mentally, is to accept his position as given by God. And that is a Herculean task. That's the battle. Truthfully, of all the stuff that we're going to talk about this morning, that's the battle. The second thought is this. Husbands, in verse number 7, acknowledge her person. We don't have to acknowledge her position. And this is why it is so hard so often for godly, good Christian ladies to hear a man stand up here and preach on this. Well, you're a man. You got it easy, brother. And the answer is, we'll find out by the end. We shouldn't have it easy. Ours, the men, should actually have a harder job. We get to Ephesians 5. But the husband's role, according to Peter, mentally, is to acknowledge her value as a person. Men, he says, learn your wives. Know them better than anyone else in the whole world knows them. How many of you men this morning, be brave? You're gonna raise your hand here in just a second. Could tell me your wife's favorite flower. I know mine. Look, look at look this. At I just make sure Jeff's at home cheese, right? Do you raise it high, man? I didn't say put it down. Do you know it? You other men are smart. Right? You're smart because these girls are gonna go home and they're gonna say what to you, brother Jeff? What is my favorite flower? And you get him, this Chair, when you get in that car, you tell him that. Jessica's is a daisy. Right, Daisy? All right, well, the, the, you know my wife's, too. But my wife is a daisy. You come to our house, and you come up the front steps, and right in the very front is a garden of daisies. She loves them. Her second favorite, very close second, is a hydrangea. I call that a bush, not a flower. But it's a flowering bush, and so that's it. I tested myself this week just to make sure I got it right. I didn't want to get it wrong. Like, oh, that guy's a jerk. He didn't even know his wife. He's preaching on it. I do. <laughs> How many of you can tell me her fav- your wife's favorite color? Yeah? You say, are these the important things? No, we're going to get to the important things. I'm just dealing with the unimportant things to make sure you know. How about the size of her? No, no, I'm not going to ask that. <laughs> I'm going to say the size of her dress. (laughs) Don't ask that question, pastor. Moving (laughs) along. Peter tells us, men, that we are to dwell according to knowledge. To dwell means to settle into, to stay with, to spend much time in a place. We are to put a priority on being with our wives. That's what it means to dwell. It seems that between work, hobbies, kids and activities, and even church, yes, we don't spend any time just with our wives. And that's a shame. I don't know the president. I've never spent a day with him. I think I know him, because I see a lot of him on TV, but I don't know him. And far too many marriages were just like that. Yeah, I see him in passing. I see her in passing. And yeah, I think she did something different with her hair. But I don't know. One of the ladies at church said that to me. <laughs> Men, is that true of us? Men, you must take on the mentality that your wife is worth you spending your time with. And I mean much time with. Pastor, she drives me nuts. Well, we know what your mental state will be. She shouldn't. By the way, if your wife drives you nuts, it's because at some point in the marriage, the two of you started walking divergent paths mentally. What you thought of. How you thought together. And what you think of each other. He also tells us of men in verse number 7 that we're to honor, to give honor unto the wife as the weaker vessel. Now, ladies, when you read that verse, especially in the old King James, you look at that and go, I'm not weaker than him. Now, physically, there can be some arguments here, right? There is a physical prowess and uh, ability of a man, a physical prowess of a woman. I know that modern psychologists, scientists tell us that's not true. But actual scientists that want to keep their credentials can tell you there is a physical difference between a man and a woman. But that's not at all what this verse is talking about. The weaker vessel here is speaking of value. Jessica and I have plates. How many have been to our house? Raise your hand. How many have been to our house? Oh, good. All over the house. And and, and there's many more that are coming over in the coming weeks and months. And as the church grows, we keep having people over. Do you know you all eat on dollar plates? Not paper plates, but you eat on dollar plates. Do you know why you eat on dollar plates? Because we don't get out the weaker vessels of our fine china that was my great-grandmother's that's in the cabinet because I don't know what you people will do at dinner. You might be great. hoo And throw it on the ground. <laughs> if you throw a dollar plate on the ground, I don't care. But if you throw my great-grandmother's china on the ground, i got to answer to my mom and my dad. How we gave those to you in security. Sorry. That's what the word weaker means. They have more value to us. They're precious to us. Men, do you view your wife as a precious thing given to you by God? If you don't, you've got to change your thinking. The first key is a clear reality. The second key is a right mentality. The third key is an honest physicality. I'm going to go long, so forgive me already. If your roast is in the oven, Jessica will pay for it. Number three, an honest physicality. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter number 7. Go back with me to 1 Corinthians chapter number 7. Paul writing to the Corinthians says this, Now concerning the things whereof you wrote unto me, it is good, verse 1, for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife, and let every woman have her own husband. I love that phrase. Paul has to clarify to the Corinthians who were in a very corrupt culture where everybody shared things. And I mean their wives. He says, you have your own and you have your own and don't share. He had to say that and he put it in the Word of God. Let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence. And likewise also the wife and the husband. The wife hath not power of her own body but the husband. <gasps> and likewise also the husband hath not power of his own body but the wife. Defraud ye not one another, except it be with consent for a time that ye may give yourselves to fasting and prayer, and come together again. Can I just say the word come together again has the same context of Song of Solomon chapter 4 and 5. Come together again, that Satan tempt you not for your incontinency. Our marriages take place, friends, in the temporal, physical realm. I believe it is the only place in which marriage is intended. Even though good people, including one that I love dearly, might disagree with me. I believe marriage was intended for this realm and this realm alone. If marriage is intended for this realm, then there must be some purpose for the physical needs in our marriage. Paul addresses both single adults and married adults in First Corinthians 7. My years ago, I was a singles director and pastor, and I loved that part of my ministry. Uh, Because it allowed me to see the development of so many marriages that came along. As people would meet, as they would begin to date, as they would begin to get married. And usually those relationships came out of left field. You know, you thought these two were going to get together and that they would be a great couple. And then somebody would move into the area. And when there was no hope for the girls in our group, the knight, the baron, in shining armor, came riding into town. And the girl would go, oh. And the guy would go, oh. And 1 Corinthians 7 was where I would always take them to make sure they understood how they lived as a single and what they would do as a married couple as well. And so we find in this passage two truths for the honest physical relationship that we should have. Letter A, there should be due benevolence to one another. What does Paul mean by rendering due benevolence? Some, sadly, some of you, when I read that, read rendered due violence. It's benevolence, not violence. Your home should not be a place brimming with due violence, rather it should be a place brimming with due benevolence one to another. A husband should always be looking to do whatever is in his wife's best interest. Likewise, the wife should always be looking to do whatever is in her husband's best interest. It is not words here, it's not the mental approach, it's the actions, the deeds themselves. Husbands and wives are to be actively trying to do the most good for each other that they possibly can, Paul says. Most marriages have breakdowns when someone gets greedy. When one part renders to themselves all the benevolence and benefits, what do I mean doing good? I mean taking care of yourself physically, emotionally, and spiritually so that you can be there to give yourself in those three areas to your partner. If you are physically shot, emotionally shot, and spiritually bereft, then you cannot render due benevolence in any of those three areas to your spouse. It is incumbent upon you to walk with the Lord, to live a healthy life, and to have a good mental approach to what God has given you so that you can do that for your spouse. They need it, Paul said. We're to render due benevolence one to another. The second letter B is the desirable benefit. And I put an exclamation point there. The church has gone silent preaching about marital relations the Bible is not now because of young people and the unmarried I will walk very carefully for the few moments that I'm on this point but I will not walk ashamedly here the Bible is clear Paul gives three simple truths in these five verses about the physical aspect of marriage one we as human beings burn for sexual relations that's just the truth Not me, really. Everyone does. The world knows this. It's why they build everything into their system to trap you and lure you into that. It's time that Christians admit this and begin defending against it. God does not want us touching each other unless we're married. I can't believe I need to say that, but I need to say that. Can I tell you something? If you see people in this church that are not married to each other, boy or girl, man or woman, touching each other, you should say to them, hey, that's not a good idea. Why? Because pastor said so? Well, certainly you're allowed to say that. But how about this? Paul said so. And God says so. Why? Because every physical touch lights the fire of sexual desire. That's what physical touch does. Every married couple knows this to be true. I mean, you can watch or you can hear or you can see in a couple's uh, counseling session when, as a pastor, there is a bridge between the relationship being restored. They will always come in and be holding hands. I can tell you the dozens of people that I've counseled through my years as a pastor, when they come in, one's sitting over here, and they're sitting like this, and they're just looking at the other one over there, and I'm behind the desk. And by the time we're done, if we do it right over the course of time, and we apply and practice biblical principles, they will come in holding hands. Why? Because the physicality has returned. By the way, it's first thing to go. It's first thing to go. Number two, he states... If you're married, you belong to your spouse. It's your own wife. It's your own husband. In other words, sexual desires that do not violate scriptural guidelines should be discussed privately and may be engaged in intimately. <gasps> it's your marriage. It's discussed Privately and it's engaged in intimately. Some of you are looking at me quite shocked this morning. Welcome to the Bible. I'm not telling you that anything I wouldn't say in counseling, it's not anything I don't say in premarriage counseling. I've got three couples in here that I did in pre-marriage counseling, and they can tell you they're all smiling because I've said this to them. I can't see your genie and then you'll know with your I did with wedding too. I know Ryan and McKenzie are smiling, Mackenzie's a little red face. Josh and Coral are smiling. I say these things. Why? Because as their pastor, it's my job to make sure that that marriage has every opportunity for success. Amen. Hebrews chapter thirteen and verse four, the Bible says this: marriage is honorable in all. Well, I wonder what that all means. And the bed undefiled. Oh, that all. I can't believe you'd say that in church. Well, God said it in the Bible, so I can say it in church. Our lovers in Song of Solomon most vividly know that their beloved is theirs and that their own bodies belong to their own spouse. To the pure, the Bible says, all things are what? Pure. Pure. If your mind is wandering into the gutter this morning, it's not because I took you there. It's because of what you're consuming. It's what you're thinking on. The reason so many marriages blush when a pastor talks this way is because we filled our minds with such garbage from television, movies, images, and videos from the internet that we have perverted God's intended enjoyment in marriage. Physical intimacy in marriage is the icing on the cake. Marriage is the cake. And the cake takes a lot of ingredients over a lot of time with careful steps and directions to make it right. Nobody puts icing on a terrible cake. Or I guess maybe they can and hope it doesn't taste bad underneath. Step number three, or truth number three in this passage. Withholding physical intimacy in marriage is defrauding your spouse. Stop and think about that. The sexual revolution says that it's my body, my choice, and I can give away my purity and intimacy whenever I want with no consequences. God says there's no sex before marriage, and once you're married, your body is her or his choice, not yours. (gasps) That's what it says directly here. I'm not lying to you. You're all looking at me. You can look at the word of God. Don't defraud each other or there will be temptation, God says. Men, do you ever wonder if your wife has a wandering heart? By the way, that's how women usually are led away in the marriage when it fails. They are led away by their heart for someone else. They capture their imagination and they think on them too long. That's usually what I've found in counseling as a pastor. Ladies, do you fear your husband has wandering eyes? Because men, that's what we're drawn to. By the way, that's a great lesson. We're going to talk about that in church tonight. Our propriety, the modesty that we ought to have. Maybe you don't wonder of these things, and I hope not. But it may be that those things are true in your marriage because you have defrauding each other in the intimacy of marriage. Because you've not mentally been engaged with one another. Because you've not faced the reality of who you are in Christ. Paul warns that defrauding each other will cause your partner to fall into Satan's tempting on their lack of incontinency. That is the lack of self-restraint. The first key is a clear reality. The second key is a right mentality. The third key is an honest physicality. And finally, we find a deeper spirituality. Go with me to Ephesians 5 and we will be done. I guess the good news is we don't have to have a long invitation after a preaching message like this. I don't need anybody to come down here and confess to me where their faults are in their marriage. What we'll do at the end is pray, think for a moment on these things, and commit to going out and resolving any issues that have arisen from the preaching today for our purposes. Let's wind into the conclusion on this. The context of Ephesians 5 passages within the practical Christianity of the church. Chapter 4 tells us that we're to edify one another, that the preachers and teachers have been giving so that we can build up the household of faith. And at the end of chapter 4 there's a process of putting off the old man and putting on the new man. In chapter 5 he turns from that edification to the walk that we have in the love of God. He teaches us how we're to walk in love with the Lord, how we to walk in love with each other. And our marriage is a central part of that, beginning in verse number 22. In Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 22, we find the Bible says, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. There's that phrase again, own husbands. Do you know, wives, you do not have to submit to me. I'm not your husband. Your submission, your surrender is only to those that God has placed over you. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself forth. They might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of the water by the word. They might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife, loveth himself. In other words, he's saying it's just a natural outflow of what you men ought to be thinking. Instead of thinking first, I'm loving my own flesh, you think first, I'm loving my wife. Because when you love her the right way, your life is going to be as blissful as it can possibly be. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth it and cherisheth, it, even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this call shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery. Now, I often wonder what he's talking about. He's talking about the church, but we also sometimes men say, yes, he's right. This marriage is a great mystery to me. It doesn't need to be. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, Let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself. And the wife see that she reverence or show respect to the position of her husband. God's goal for marriage union is to produce physical and spiritual fruit, not just children, a spiritual fruit that also makes a successful home. It is a husband and a wife deepening their relationship with God and with each other. The secret to drawing closer together is drawing closer to God. I often will take in marriage counseling the picture of the triangle. God is here, the husband and the wife are here, and the closer that the husband and wife get to the Lord Jesus Christ, the closer they will naturally be to each other. Right. Right. That's the secret to success in your marriage. The deeper spiritual relationship begins with wives surrendering as the church does. The church has one head, that's Jesus Christ. The submission of a wife to the leadership of her husband is exactly what a church does in following Christ. Women, if you begin to understand what your role and function is as a believing spouse, it is that you are a picture of the pure, spotless, wrinkle-free church to Christ our Savior and head. The husband... If you see your role as that, it will change how you approach it. It will turn your hatred into a deep and yearning love for God and for your husband. The world is going to hell because churches have their own ideas of who the head of the church is. And because Christian homes fail to model the example correctly. I heard a woman once, years ago, say to me, my husband might be the head, but I'm the neck. and He doesn't turn any way I don't tell him to. And I thought, ooh, man, I got the work cut out for me in this one. Letter B, husbands, sacrifices, Christ. I said earlier, this is the hardest of all. Do you know how much Christ sacrificed for the church? He died for it. He literally died for the church. Men, that means not just, well, in a heroic fashion, if someone breaks into my house, I will stand between her and the perpetrator. That's not at all what it's talking about. Though you ought to do that. <laughs> Some of us, that would not be much of an obstacle for the man or the person that broke into our house. It means that every part of your life, you're willing to sacrifice for her. But this is my hobby horse. Well, not anymore, it's not. But but yeah guys, the problem is we always lay all of the work and the load on the wise to do their job and surrender. And we never put any focus on the spiritual aspect of us sacrificing. Marriage is a sacrifice. That's right. They took me off the market. Good luck to the rest of the girls. That's not what I'm talking about. That's not the sacrifice I'm talking about. But that's how some of you think. Right? Husbands, we are to lovingly sacrifice. That is agape. That's the word used here for our wives. You know what? Often our wives cannot trust us because we are not sacrificial in our love, in our devotion, and in our service to them. Christ has never failed his church. He gave himself for our redemption, and through his resurrection we have the capacity and ability to live victoriously. The Christian home with an engaged sacrificing husband is a home that has a consistent walk with God. Homes that struggle, as a pastor, I never go and say, well, what's that wife's problem? Well, pastor, are you saying the wife doesn't have any problem? I'm sure she does. But I'll tell you what her chief one is. She doesn't have a husband. It's sacrificing and walking with God. That's why as a church and as a ministry, as a pastor, I put my primary focus not on building up the women of this church. I thank God for the women of this church all the time. My job is to build up the men of this church. To make them into the men that God wants them to be, according to this book. And men, I can tell you, if you want a deeper spiritual walk, you'll be a sacrificing soul. You want to unlock a healthy marriage this morning? Then take four keys and get to work. A clear reality of our roles and responsibilities from Genesis 2 and 3. A right mentality of acceptance and acknowledgement from 1 Peter 3 verses 1 through 7. An honest physicality with benevolence and benefits from 1 Corinthians 7 verses 1 through 5. A deeper spirituality through surrender and sacrifice. From Ephesians chapter 5. If you will do these things, I promise you. I, I'm not just saying this as a self-help. I'm telling you from the spirit of God himself. If you will do these four, your marriage will change overnight. Amen. Well, mine's healthy. It'll be healthier. Mine's horrible. It'll begin to improve. Yeah. You will take these four keys. My hope is that every home, new or old, would desire to always hold and use these keys to unlock a biblically healthy Father, help us, I pray.